I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So today we talk to a theologian and a philosopher, really. I guess he's more of a theologian, Patrick Franklin. He talks about otherness versus sameness and something that's pretty interesting to me, the whole notion of religionless Christianity. He wants to make contact with reality in a, a variety of ways. 
He's an articulate guy, uh, articulate as hell, actually. You're going to really enjoy listening to him uh, speak about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, about his uh, campaign against Hitler, and the contradictions in this man's life. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a theologian who was out to assassinate Hitler. And it's a pretty uh, interesting paradox and contradiction, uh, and, and has a lot to say, I think, about the human condition. Religionless Christianity, really interesting interview today. Uh, again, davidpecklive.com. Please check out my site, uh, newsletters there, my uh, blog on taking it global, and of course, the book Real Change is Incremental. Uh, you want to get your copy now, hot off the press. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We have another special guest with us here today. Um, Patrick Franklin is joining us from Saskatchewan? From Manitoba. Manitoba. So close. Well, thanks. Uh, sort of close. <laughs> I guess nothing's really close in Canada, is it? Yeah, it's about 25 hours worth of driving. There you go. So close, give or take 500 kilometers or so. Yeah, yeah something like yeah. that. Well, thanks for joining us today, Patrick. Good to be here. So um, we're going to talk about uh, somebody who who's played a significant role in your life, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Today, that's that's what I'm looking. By the way, um, Patrick is a assistant professor of theology and ethics at Providence Theological Seminary in Manitoba, quite a quite a distance away from Saskatchewan for my uh, for my listeners who are bankrupt geographically like me. Um, so. We are going to talk a little bit about about this guy that has played a huge role in your life. You've you've written, uh, you've read extensively on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You've written about him. You've spoken about him. You teach about him now. I would imagine he's kind of made his way into sort of almost every aspect of your life. I would think his thinking and his ideas and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about the guy before we go in? I mean, I'm just going to throw out a quote here. This is a quote I found online, and you might know where it's from, but, quote, the ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children, close quote. And, I mean, the, the net is full of brilliant quotes. I pulled uh, love letters from Cell 92 off uh, off of my bookshelf and was flipping through it uh, yesterday and just this morning in prep for the interview. Tell us a bit about this guy and why you got so pulled in. Yeah, well, Bonhoeffer is very quotable uh, in a lot of his stuff. That's that's one of the fantastic things about him. He he can engage in a long sort of treatise or writing, um, but then he gives you these gems that are just fantastic, like the stuff you just quoted. Uh, you could probably quote lots of those kinds of things. Another sure. great one is, uh, you know, when he's talking about spirituality and religion in uh, Germany at the time, everybody going to church, um, having a nice worship time, and then walking out the church doors and sort of literally stepping over Jews, right, who are wow. downtrodden. Yeah. Bonhoeffer says, only he who, who uh, cries out for the Jews has the right to sing the Gregorian chant. Wow. So stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Cries out for the it's, Jews, has yeah, the right really to worship. Well, it makes, makes you wonder, too, how he wrote. You know, yeah. would, would he would he write, you know, uh, for those kind of phrases, those aphorisms, thinking, well, one day, you know, people are going to quote, or they're going to quote me one day. Yeah, you know? well, I think he did a lot of reading. I mean, even right. in his prison cell, you know, you're 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 seeing that he's constantly asking for books, and so he's reading everybody from Kierkegaard to Nietzsche to uh, all kinds of people, Dilthe and and others, and uh, he tries to write uh, plays and poetry, and he does all kinds of stuff. Uh, I remember when I first got interested in him, I was doing my master's degree, and uh, I wrote my master's thesis on him, and then later did some work on him for my PhD. 
but my master's uh, thesis advisor told my wife, oh, Patrick, he's uh, going to bed with Bonhoeffer at night. You better watch it. He's going to be a changed person. <laughs> and and that was true. He said, you've got to be careful. If you pick up and read Bonhoeffer, you, you can't really read Bonhoeffer without being deeply impacted. And, you know, you may not agree with everything he says, but you can't walk away without sort of being struck in by him, I think. So was he, was he more of a, we haven't even talked about him historically here, but uh, let's do yeah. that in a second, but was he more of a theologian, would you say, than a philosopher? Or was he, a, a, I, mean, I mean, on a, some level he was a humanitarian as well, but yeah. w- was he a philosopher more than a theologian or, or a little bit of both? Well, he kind of went through phases. Um, his early phase is the academic theology phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, he always felt sort of, uh, caught between two worlds. On the one hand, there is this new wave of Barthianism, theology of Karl Barth, Karl Barth okay. uh, that was sweeping through uh, Germany and Switzerland and, and, and Europe, basically. Um, Barth's letter to the, his commentary on Romans was described as dropping a theological bomb on liberal Christianity at the time. Hmm. Uh, and, and Barth sort of argues that we can't capture God with our human language. God has to break through that himself. And that's got lots of implications, but Bonhoeffer really was captured by that because in his tradition, it seemed that religious language had been so co-opted by, you know, all kinds of things. And so Bart's fresh perspective that God's word comes from above really struck him. Hmm. But Bonhoeffer also lived amongst people who were uh, deeply liberal, and so he lived on the same street as the great uh, historical theologian Adolf von Harnack. Uh, and some of these wonderful people that really stressed history. And uh, so the historical sort of existential side would would push back against the kind of from-beyond Bartianism. And Bonhoeffer was sort of caught in the middle of that, or at least in this kind of dialogical uh, dialogical tension between. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so early in his theology, he's really playing with that. He actually wrote his, if if you're in Germany, right, by the way, you don't write one PhD dissertation, you've got to write two. Right, and you got to make them so, incomprehensible, isn't that? That's a, right. You yeah. got to make them as incomprehensible as possible. Yeah, you know, like you know, a hundred-word uh, paragraph. <laughs> that's right. Kind of thing, yeah. thousand-word paragraph. <laughs> but his second uh, dissertation was called "Act in Being," and uh, the the subtitle in this uh, I can actually pull it out for you here. Um, so, just speaking of your philosophical side there, the subtitle, uh, subtitle of that is Transcendental Philosophy and Ontology and Systematic Theology. <laughs> and so he's wrestling with Kant Real on the page one side burner. and Heidegger on the other. And yeah, it's, it's, it's deeply philosophical. And uh, yeah. So, what, what, so. Yeah, what little I know about the guy, and I don't know a ton. Uh, I saw a film about him a few years ago. I, I've read, uh, uh, I read The Cost of the Discipleship years ago. I've certainly um, read most of Love Letters because I find it quite fascinating that he spent so much time in jail for, for, the, for the crimes he was accused of. Um, is the, the, the sort of apparent, not apparent, but very uh, visible contradiction in his life, this, this guy who studied theology and philosophy, who believes in a yeah. God and has this ethic, yeah. and yet, on the other hand, who is deeply uh, undermining what was going on in Germany, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, politically and socially, and, and actually ultimately leading up to his execution, um, wanting to try to, to, to assassinate Hitler. And I'm sure that you've spent a fair bit of time thinking about this and, and, and reading about it, but can you talk to me a little bit about that contradiction? Yeah. Well, like, as we were just talking before, he, he went through this deeply academic phase, and one of the things he describes as his change is 
he goes off to America. He has a number of experiences there. Um, he encounters, for example, um, black theology in Harlem, hmm. and um, he encounters an oppressed people, and he really felt that, that racism in America was, was horrendous. Hmm. And, uh, but he, he loved being there and, uh, and just experiencing that. But uh, that sensitized him to some of the stuff that he would later see happen uh, later on. But one of the things he talks about is just being encountered by Christ there and particularly by the Sermon on the Mount. And so when he goes back to Germany in the 1930s, he kind of has this transition from a more... He never leaves behind what I would call rigorous thinking, but he leaves behind what we might call sort of highly theoretical hmm. language hmm. and moves into a more uh, concrete language. And so he writes his famous books like The Cost of Discipleship and, uh, and The Ethics and those kinds of things, um, which have this kind of um, concrete quality to them. Life Together, you know, some of these famous books that he wrote. Uh, but he's captivated by the Sermon on the Mount. And and, it's and, a, and just unpack the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount yeah. is all about doing, isn't it? Well, it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Sermon yeah. on the Mount is one of uh, Jesus' most famous uh, bits of teaching. Um, and famously, it's, it includes the passage that talks about uh, turning the other cheek. So, right. So you don't repay evil with evil, you turn the other cheek. Uh, you go the extra mile. You know, if somebody takes your coat, you, you don't take it back, you actually give them your other garment as well. Uh, so pretty radical stuff. And uh, in fact, Gandhi based his own teachings hmm. off of the Sermon on the Mount uh, and credited uh, his teaching uh, to Jesus in that regard. Um, and incidentally, Bonhoeffer was deeply interested in going to study with Gandhi. Oh, is that right? Yeah, okay. Well, he felt that Gandhi was the only one um, practicing Christianity, <laughs> yeah, which was kind of ironic in a sense. But he looked around Europe at the time, and he says, nobody's, pra- nobody's actually following Jesus here. Well, didn't Gandhi have some kind of famous quote, too, about, about um, you know, you know what's, that, what's that old uh, the Chesterton quote about Christi- Christians are the greatest argument against Christianity? Uh, yes. Didn't yes. Gandhi have something similar to that? It sounds familiar. Yeah. Like, that, but yeah, you know what? Uh, it sounds yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to dig. Maybe if I can find it, I'll, I'll put it on the, when we put up your bio and, and uh, I'll, I'll throw it up there on the, on, the, on the face-to-face site. Yeah. And so Bonhoeffer's wrestling with this, and uh, this becomes a theme for him later on, by the way, that, that Christ exists beyond the Church. Hmm. And, hmm. Um, That's interesting. And, and really, so, so Gandhi living out sort of a Christian life in a way, uh, you know, without saying, without, you know, n- no disrespect to Gandhi's own religious background, but Bonhoeffer seeing the presence of Christ there. So, so he's, he's captivated by the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words, but Bonhoeffer is not a principle-driven ethical thinker. Hmm. Uh, in other words, he never turns ethical ideas into absolutes. Right. Interesting. Yeah, well, he's much, much more of an existentialist in that sense. I think so, yeah. And part of his, ch- his change away from the theoretical was a change toward the realness of God and the directness of God. And so, in a way, it's hard to portray this because you can almost portray this in such a way as to cast him as a, as a fundamentalist. Hmm. <laughs> he was so Jesus-centered that uh, ethics in general became relative in a way. Right. Uh, because the only absolute principle is Christ himself, who is a person, not a principle. Right, right. And so, so Bonhoeffer holds to this kind of pacifist um, ethic, uh, because for everyday life, that's what we want to do. We want to train for peace. We don't want to train for war. We want to train for peace. We want to form our character to be peaceable uh, and forgiving and merciful and all that kind of stuff. But in the context of, of the Second World War and Nazism, um, he's not going to turn his pacifist um, ideas into an absolute principle. Uh, he's going to subordinate that to the, the absolute call of Christ, uh, which transcends principles. 
So, so that's part of the tension he kind of gets into there. And then, of course, what does it mean to hear the call of Christ? That raises all kinds of other questions. Yeah, of course it does. I mean, yeah. if this is a guy that walks out of a church service and says, you, you're only allowed to, to sing the Gregorian chant if you get down and you help your, your fellow man, mm-hmm. you help the Jews that are clearly being demonized. And, and, and I don't know what time this was at. Would he have known that, that uh, the Nazis were actually, you know, the final solution had, had started at this point? Um, so yeah, but anyway, my point, I guess, is that this is a guy who wants to make contact with reality in, in, in meaningful ways that, 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 that makes sense. That's not just about, um, um, connecting theory and practice, but actually rolling up his sleeves and, 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 and he did get into the middle of it. You know, from going, like you're saying, you know, that theoretical language to the concrete. I don't, I don't think you get much more concrete than trying to assassinate somebody. Yeah, and, and that, that takes you out of you know, what we might call sort of normative ethics into a realm where, you know, you're, you're, going, you're entering into a place where it seems like you're going to be doing evil no matter what you do. And, and so you're trying to discern what, what the best thing is. What the, the sort of the, the lesser of two evils is almost. Kind of in a way. And yeah. I, I think as he would put it, he talks about being realistic and, and being responsible a fair bit. Um, what you just said actually just reminds me of a quote in his ethics. There's a quote uh, where he's writing, he says, what matters is participating in the reality of God and the world in Jesus Christ today. And doing so in such a way that I never experienced the reality of God without the reality of the world, nor the reality of the world without the reality of God. So this is deeply incarnational. He sees that we meet God in the midst of the world, not in some, you know, abstract right. uh, list right. of rules, but but in the midst of the world we meet God and and we spawn to Him. So that well, he's not in. He's, I mean, this you know this 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 is going to take us into some other parts of the conversation, I'm sure. But but I just as we as we get deeper, you just realize how much there is to talk about because it seems to me that that, that any kind of um, uh, any kind. I think a lot of the uh, uh, understandings or misunderstandings about God or a God today are, are caricatures, are a, are these abstract notions, yeah. and and D, and Bonhoeffer's got no no time for that. It no, sounds no patience for that. Yeah. And if it's not having an impact in the way you live your life, then why bother? Yes, yes. Now there's an interesting thing about this way of thinking. He he never goes to the point of saying that my involvement uh, with responsible action, as he calls it, which, which he feels he had to do to get involved in the resistance movement. He never actually excuses himself from hmm. the guilt required in doing that. Hmm. So it's, it's not a simplistic ethic that says, okay, I'm going to do the lesser of two evils, therefore, therefore I'm justified. Right. What he's saying is, I'm going to do the lesser of two evils uh, because in the midst of this I have to do something, but in the process I'm actually going to become guilty. And so it's, it's more still, important yeah. that I re- act responsibly than that I keep my hands clean completely, sort of thing. Yeah, so it, it's it's not only the lesser of two evils, but for for him it was it, it's less wrong than not acting at all. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's not like a justification. It's not like okay, now I can right. sort of pat myself on the back and say I've done a good thing by killing Hitler. No, I've I've actually done a horrible. Which thing. is which is what lifeboat ethics was all about, wasn't it? I mean, the whole utilitarian approach that that okay, we've got to do something for the greatest amount, the good for the greatest amount of people. Uh, and don't you, as a result of that principle, absolve yourself of that moral responsibility then, or at that, least potentially push them out of the lifeboat? Okay, great. I saved these 10 people. I had to kill the one, yeah. but we managed to save 10, so therefore aren't I wonderful? 
Yes, and Bonhoeffer's not interested in that. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't seem like it. No, because he's he's before God in this, and and with utilitarianism, you know, no act in and of itself is right or wrong. It's only in with respect to its greater consequences, right? Um, but Bonhoeffer would see himself as acting before God and acting responsibly f- before God, but not acting innocently necessarily. Right, right. We just he, don't have that luxury. Would he have, I mean, so clearly he was into civil disobedience of, of one kind or another. Would he have called Gandhi a Christian? That's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, basically what he says is that, I don't know if he'd call him a Christian, um, because, you know, if Gandhi, Gandhi wants to be a Hindu, he's not going to sort of insult him and say, well, no, you're not a Hindu, you're a Christian. Right, right, but I think right. what he'd want to say is that Christ is evident in Gandhi's life. Right. And he did say things like, you know, when I look around at Christianity today, we're not practicing Christianity in the West. Gandhi's practicing Christianity. Right. Um, because he's following the concrete teachings of Jesus. And, um, and so for Bonhoeffer, it's, you know, to be a Christian is to follow Christ, not just to believe certain things or to worship in a certain way, but to actually follow Christ and some of the costly kinds of teachings that he had. So would he, would he be sort of, um, you know, it's pretty easy to, to criticize what's going on in the church today. You don't have to go too far online to find some crazy story about, you know, either a group or an individual that, you know, is doing something crazy right-wingish or crazy left-wingish, you know, that oh, yeah. polarization, it's all over the place. Oh, I have a friend who sends me these emails from time to time, and, and, and you know, we laugh about them and so on, about these these extremes. But I, I wonder to what degree those are just indicators of a far greater problem um, of what's actually happening, kind of, uh, from a religious perspective, from a Christian perspective, from a Buddhist perspective, and so on. Uh, are we kind of losing our way? And do you think Bonhoeffer would, would, do you think he was a bit prophetic in that sense? Losing our way as a church? As uh, religious people? Yeah, I think as, I think I even want to step back, because I, I want to take us into this conversation, you know, this famous phrase of Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity. Yeah. You know, have we kind of lost our way maybe enough to actually say, maybe there is something to this idea of religionless Christianity once we kind of apprehend it and understand it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not for a second suggesting I do, but I definitely want to dig a little bit deeper on that. Yeah, well, I, I think Bonhoeffer would, I mean, he lived in a very different time, so it's yeah. always a little bit hard to sort of import us, him into our situation. But if we can allow ourselves to be a little bit imaginative and... and uh, you know, to think, I, I think, I think he would be disturbed uh, by the state of the church in North America. Um, I mean, just take one of his quotes and just see how this sits. You know, he says at one point in, um, I'm just trying to remember where he says, I think it's in the Ethics, actually. He says, talking about Jesus, he says, the figure of the crucified invalidates all attempts to make success our standard. Hmm. Uh, and you, just, you just sit with that for a minute, this yeah. theology of the cross. The figure of the crucified invalidates all attempts to make success our standard. And then you look at Christianity in North America and, and how we define what a good church is or, yeah, or, what, sure. a, uh, you know, or what the good life is, um, that we could be so comfortable with, with a lot of things. Um, I think if you sit with a quote like that and just sort of oh, ruminate over it. <laughs> well, you, yeah, there's all kinds of ways you could go. I mean, there's a sense in which I would, uh, would want, you know, after that quote, I think, oh, Bonhoeffer would be embarrassed to call himself a Christian in today's context, or at least small-c Christian, right? I don't want to be associated with those people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, it's, we're generalizing. Yeah, of course, of course. What, what about this, uh, you know, um, the, the, what appears to be almost, um, in the West at least, this, um, 
this attack on, on religions of all kinds. And you look at, uh, some of the atheistic, uh, uh, um, fundamentalists, you know, the yeah. Dawkins of the world, the Sam Harris's and Christopher Hitchens and so on. I mean, they're bringing, I think on, on many levels, valuable, uh, commentary and critiques and so on. But at the same time, they really, to me, they, they, they strike me as very right wing in their, uh, and as bankrupt epistemologically as, as anyone on, on, on the other side. And, right. and, yeah. and it's just another polarized response. And it's, I don't, I don't ultimately think it's that helpful. Yeah, uh, Alistair McGrath refers to the movement as fundamentalist atheism. Right. And uh, and there's that sense where it's a kind of blinded thing. And it's interesting. I mean, it depends how you define religion, right? There's all kinds of ways of yep. defining it. And Bonhoeffer meant something very specific by religion. Okay. Uh, for example, he, he wasn't talking about what sociologists would call religion um, as a sort of sociological, uh, phenomenological factor out there. And if you talk to sort of sociologists of religion or even scholars of religious studies, uh, they'll point out things like, well, actually, all of us are religious. Uh, right. We all we all de- depend on these unfounded assumptions. Uh, we also are all deeply formed by our context and culture. And I can't remember who said this, but somebody said, um, basically, people who think that they have no religion are probably just at the mercy of some defunct economist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a pretty funny line. Yeah, well, in other words, we're, I mean, if we have no religion, if we're not thinking critically about our deeply held beliefs, um, religion, quote-unquote, then we're probably just consumerists. That's our religion. Um, and, and, you know, you could talk about religion in terms of looking at the kind of imagery that, that companies like Coca-Cola and Disney and others yeah, use sure. to talk about their products. Very religious language. Uh, sometimes, and uh, ideas. But that's not what Bonhoeffer means. He's not speaking sociologically uh, so much as a certain approach to religion. And uh, did you want to get into some of that now? Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's talk about what how, how Bonhoeffer would define religion. I mean, I'm certainly interested in with, with my travel, uh, my upbringing, quite conservative, uh, and yet as I travel, uh, the more Buddhists I meet, because I spend a fair bit of time in Southeast Asia, but many Muslims along the way, and certainly with my podcasting, I'm all over the place, you know, culturally and contextually and so on. Yeah. And I just, I, there's a there's a sense for me in which I don't, the whole notion of a religionless Christianity is a very interesting one to me, but this idea of religion-less living yeah. um, with a more... I don't know, focus on the divine or focus on, you know, David Hume said all metaphysics should be com- 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 committed to the flames because they're, you know, they're, pro- they're profoundly meaningless questions. Why would we mm-hmm. talk about things out there beyond us, right? right beyond right. our physical experience. That's insane. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. But, but so how do we make it more meaningful? How, you know, there's 6 billion of us that have some kind of a belief system, whatever it is, you know, that could be called religion of one kind or another. And then you've got your other side who apparently are scientists. <laughs> and again, I'd, I'm just really uncomfortable with the polarization. And, right, and, right. And yeah. I just, you kind of go, geez, can't we just all get in a room and chat about this? Well, ironically with that last one, it's funny because sometimes um, some certain areas can be behind in things. If you look at contemporary philosophy of science, it's moved well beyond this idea that we operate purely objectively or something like that. I mean worldviews and, and preconceptions. That's all yep. part of contemporary philosophy of science, as you know. So it's just ironic sometimes when it, some it, of these pseudoscientists say, well, to be really scientific is to not have religion at all. 
Exactly, and I and I and I think you know your comment about defining religion is really interesting too because it's, I mean I often say to people we need to define our terms and I mean it's a pretty simple thing to say really from a philosophical perspective let's well what do you mean by this and what do I mean by this because if we're not at, if we don't start at the same place then we, we're not even speaking each other's uh, language That's and true. I think a lot of that is happening today and so I get frustrated when you know A gets tossed in with B when 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 A is actually way more subtle and nuanced. Yes, yes. And it happens, it seems, all the time. The media is doing it. Lifestyle advertisers do it. Um, you know, film Hollywood does it. You know, writers do it. So anyway, I don't know. There's something that, there's an exclusivity to it that really makes me uncomfortable. Right, yeah. So, so Bonhoeffer was a religionless Christian. Tell me what that means. Yes. Well, you know, first of all, just quickly, it'd be, it'd be, I think, helpful to say what it doesn't mean. Okay, good. Um, and religionless Christianity does not mean churchless Christianity. Uh, now, we can question the form the church ought to take. Uh, right. And Bonhoeffer was totally open to that, and he was thinking of new ways of doing church. Um, but the reason it can't be churchless Christianity is because Bonhoeffer is so deeply incarnational, deeply relational. What do you mean by, uh, uh, for the listeners, what do you mean by deeply incarnational? What does that mean? Well, it's the idea that we are uh, fundamentally relational beings, and that we really can't be human other than by being human together. Right. Okay. So that our personhood completes each other, sort of thing. And and there, so there's this. And he, and he wrote a lot about community, right? This idea. That's right. Yeah. And so for him, church and community would kind of be synonymous. They'd come together, deeply tied into this relational anthropology that he has. That human beings are relational. Uh, that part of what sin or evil does is turn us into self-focused beings who turn in upon ourselves. And so part of what redemption has to do is turn us back out so that we are for each other and with each other. Would, would Bonhoeffer have ever asked me if I go to church? Would he have asked you that? Yeah, yeah. Well, ironically, uh, he grew up in a family that never went to church. <laughs> right. So that's, I guess, what I'm trying to get to, right? This yeah. whole idea when we talk about church, we think of this place or this building. or yeah, but, yeah. but actually, in fact, I wonder how, you know, Lenny Bruce, wonderful comment, you know, this comic back in the 50s who I don't think really believed um, in, in, in certainly a traditional God, said uh, every day people are leaving the church and going back to God. Yeah, which I thought really interesting, right? Which I think is a nice and little segue into this idea of religionless Christianity. I think so, as long as it doesn't stop there. Because I think I think what what Bonhoeffer had to say is, I mean, he's looking around at his church in his day, and he says this whole thing's a sham. Right, right. So if we're if we're going to be true to the church, we need to leave the church, so that we can reform the church truly. Hmm. Um, because it, it's not just a leaving and going out as individuals, it's a coming together again uh, in Christ to be community together. And that's got to take on new forms, it's got to get beyond the cliché, but it has to happen in some way sure. or another. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's kind of... So it's not a churchless Christianity, although we definitely have to question, you know, what is the church and how can we... All right, so we're back live uh, with Face to Face and Patrick Franklin. We had a bit of a technological interruption yesterday. Apparently the school that Patrick teaches at lost power. Um, so Patrick, welcome back. Thank you very much. Yeah. So was it like a, a small attack from, from your Southern neighbors or what? Oh, uh, it must've been maybe yeah. a tornado or something. I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was perfectly sunny out and then all the power was gone and then I don't know what happened. But wow. Sort we're of. Back. Uh, excellent. So maybe by the end of the uh, interview, we can come up with some sort of metaphysical explanation for that. Yes, might, yes. Might, might be appropriate. So I have a copy of uh, uh, um, 
an essay that you wrote here that you can talk a little bit about, but I'm going to quote you to bring you back into the conversation where we were cut off yesterday. We were talking a little bit about, the, you know, what, what what the church was, what it is, and probably more importantly, what it was for Bonhoeffer. And you had quoted him, I think, and said that, you know, in order to to be true to the church, we've got to leave it. And what I want to talk about is how that impacts the way people live their lives, how this might impact the way they do what they do and so on. So to quote you um, from your um, um, from your essay, Bonhoeffer's Missional Ecclesiology, which uh, you, you want to tell us where that was published? Was that? Yeah, that was published in the McMaster Journal of Theology and Ministry. Okay. Uh, fairly McMaster fairly recently? College. Uh, yeah, that was 20, I think it's on there, I don't remember now, yeah. 2011, something okay. like that? Okay. Maybe 2010? <laughs> 2010, right. Time passes quickly. So, quote, oh, to, quote, to understand Bonhoeffer's conception of religionless Christianity, we must first examine what he means by religion. To explain his view, uh, I will elucidate the distinctions he makes between religion and faith, close quote. So instead of me continuing to read your paper, why don't you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that elucidation? Yeah, sure. Well, and just to back up in terms of the t- context he's in, we've got to remember Bonhoeffer's operating, of course, in the Second World War, He's deeply concerned about the plight of the Jews. Um, he saw this very, very early, the threat of Hitler. He was actually gave a radio um, a broadcast in 1933 and was sort of cut off. Uh, some people call it technological difficulties. Others see some kind of right. you know, conspiracy in there. But nevertheless, he was cut off midway um, in sort of denouncing Hitler. Huh. So he's, he's very much uh, in the midst of this, and he sees a church all around him that's capitulated to Nazism. And, um, and amazingly, he's been able to stand against this and network with some others who are doing the same. So the thing he's deeply concerned about is the kind of religion that can just exist and be okay with that. Uh, it's a kind of religion that isn't grounded very well in reality uh, or experience. And so as he begins to talk about religion, as I said before, he's not talking about churchless Christianity, uh, but he is questioning you know, what the true form of the church is going to be. Mm-hmm. And maybe it requires leaving this uh, this abomination that it's become in order to start something fresh. Um, and it's not just talking about secularity. He's not a death of God theologian, the same right. that Paul Tillich or someone was, although he does use that language, uh, I think, as a way of moving the conversation forward. Right. So he begins to talk about religion, and there's several different ways that uh, Bonhoeffer talks about religion. Uh, one of the ways is when he says it's preoccupied with metaphysics. Uh, he doesn't dismiss metaphysics as being important, but if religion is all about the beyond, um, and it becomes all about abstractions and about trying to live according to some beyond abstract idea, then that's not we're talking, what we're talking about when we're talking about Christianity. So that's one of the things he argues about. I don't know if you want to... So he wants, it, he wants it kind of rooted in the real world, in other words. He wants it rooted in the real world, yeah. He talks a lot about the reality of God. And, uh, and he's speaking of the Incarnation, where uh, God doesn't just stay somewhere beyond the world, uh, nor is he completely imminent in it, but he becomes incarnate in it, uh, so to speak, to draw us in. Well, and wouldn't that be a, critic, a critique of, of most um, sort of agnostics or atheists today? You know, where, mm-hmm. does, where does God make contact with reality? I mean, how does, how does that make any difference to my life today? How does that make me love my wife more? How does that make me be a better person or, or do my job better, if we're always talking about something out there beyond us, yeah. you know, how does, that, how does that actually connect? Yeah, and at different points in history, it's been able to connect. You know, people living around the time of the Reformation were bombarded with guilt, 
you know, and they were the threat of, of hell and damnation was very pervasive. And so the beyond seemed more directly relevant because mm-hmm. it was a message of sort of comfort, right? Right. Uh, but in Bonhoeffer's day, he says, well, you know, we're sort of out of that era now, and so we're stuck with having to manipulate people and tell them their good deeds are really bad right, right. <laughs> so that we can offer them this great forgiveness they need. Um, because if Christianity is simply about the afterlife or the beyond, uh, then it's not going to be able to really impact modern people, and certainly not suffering well, aren't people. Aren't you then just talking about uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card, really, in, in Exactly. A sense? Yeah. Yeah, right. And he was very critical of that kind of spirituality. Not that he disbelieves in the afterlife, uh, but he just doesn't see this as the heart of, of biblical faith. You know, right. He makes a comment that, you know, you don't see this very much in the Old Testament, for example. They didn't have a strong understanding of the afterlife. It was all about sort of deliverance and liberation, hmm. uh, as well as a real sort of relationship with God. So he wouldn't have seen some sort of bizarre, absurd plan behind Nazi Germany. He was clearly saying, no, this is not what was meant to be, and I'm going to fight against it. I mean, there must have been some sort of deterministic, I would think, approach to this. Oh, there's a bigger design here. And, and, and yet he, he said no. And, and fought back and wanted others to join him. Right, right. Yeah, no, he doesn't fall into that kind of determinism. And uh, I think probably most thoughtful theologians don't. I mean, there, right. are, there are, of course, some that do. Um, I think sometimes we just want to dismiss how horrifying the Holocaust right. really yeah, was. Of course. We don't know how to deal yeah. with it. Yeah, we don't know how to deal with it, really. No. So, I mean, another thing that Bonhoeffer talks about in his notion of religious, uh, religionless Christianity, he, he says, religion is always oriented towards escapism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's always trying to point to um, sort of the God who's like a genie. You know, we're right. going to escape to this, this genie-like God who's going to show up and deliver us from everything. Uh, but Bonhoeffer says, well, this isn't really the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible enters into suffering. Um, he's a God who allowed himself to be shamed. Uh, and forsaken you know, through the person of Christ. And so Bonhoeffer is saying the only way that God is present in the world is through suffering, uh, through the suffering Messiah, and through the Church, who is also called to bear the suffering of others. So we're going to be Christians by doing what Jesus did, uh, which is not sort of praying to God while ignoring the suffering around us and just sort of hoping magically that God will do something about it. Right, yeah, there's a great, uh, and I've talked about this before, I'm sure, in a podcast or two along the way, but there's a great Buddhist proverb that says, you know, by all means, you know, if you're out in a a, a, um, a boat and you're lost, by all means pray, but, you know, for heaven's sakes, keep keep rowing as well, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's very, I think Jesus was very much like that. Huh. He, he certainly prayed, but he, he did what he prayed. Yeah. And, and Bonhoeffer is very much like that. I well, mean, he's all about action, isn't he, Bonhoeffer? I mean, holy cow, if he, if oh, he yeah. really truly was a part of this assassination attempt and so on and working behind the scenes, I mean, this is a guy, I mean, he really was underground. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he was, he was very much involved, and uh, he was a doer, not just a, a talker, for sure. So do you think he would, you know, what kind of a message do you think he'd have today to, to some of the, 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 the celebrity-like atheists, you know, the, the Richard Dawkins of the world and the Sam Harrises and so on? Do you think he would say, guys, you, you've got the wrong God? <laughs> you're, t- you're talking about the wrong God. That's, I, don't, I don't believe in that God either. You, you yeah. know, here's, here's the religionless God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think some of the forms of atheism are basically just sort of flip coin of degenerate forms of theism. 
Right. And and <laughs> sort good. of you know, sort of parasitic upon some of that right. stuff. I was actually just right. reading Charles Taylor this morning, his book A Secular Age. Uh and he's talking about um how even for someone like Hume, when Hume um dismisses the supernatural and miracles, I mean, we could say today that, okay, well Hume's just a reductionist and yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's you know, perhaps partly true. It's the Enlightenment spirit, right? But another part of that is there is an awful lot of superstition going around mm-hmm. in Hume's day, and, and maybe he had some good reasons for saying a lot of this is just kind of garbage. <laughs> and I think we see a similar thing maybe today in that if we're going to be kind of a Christianity that refuses to grow up, uh, that refuses to take the reality of the world seriously, but also not to throw out our, our sort of supernatural beliefs, you know, that's hard work. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes what we have is we have sort of a de- degenerate kind of Christianity that remains at sort of a Sunday school level, uh, which just becomes sort of easy pickings for uh, people like Dawkins and Hitchens and others. I mean, Hitchens, all he has to do is just bring out the comedy of some of this stuff, right? <laughs> well, and there's a lot of comedy there, really, too, isn't there? I mean, there, I mean, yeah. would you say kind of comedy is synonymous with, with hypocrisy, maybe, to some degree? Well, yeah, just kind of the the ridiculousness of some of it. Yeah, and the hypocrisy, for sure. And, and the, the superficial, I'd say the superficial element of it, uh, that, that becomes very easy for, for the atheist to pick up on. Um, so sometimes Christians just don't wrestle deep enough with, with suffering, for example. You mentioned before, you just mentioned the idea that some kind of just see it as a part of divine determinism, kind of right. the idea that God always has a plan, and so this has a purpose in your life. Right, right. Without really stopping to reflect on just just how deeply those words might cut and what they actually mean. And what and and, and what the thing I think that's infuriated me about some of these reactions or responses is what does it mean for others? Yeah. So when you take that approach, what you're really talking about is your own life. Yes. You're not really taking into consideration. You know, uh, the 6.9 other billion people in the world. Yes, that's right. And, and that's just, it's so individualistic. And, right. and, and what's the word I'm looking for? It's just so myopic. You know? Yeah, it, it's a bit of that mis- escapist mentality as well, I think. And, and I think, again, one of the things Bonhoeffer is going to push us on is to take the cross seriously. Hmm. That there is an aspect of human life that, that quite literally just doesn't make sense. It just sucks. And right, uh, right. no amount of explaining it away is going to help. And that's not really what the Bible gives us, an explanation or a justification. What it does is it bears witness to a God who enters into it right, and, and calls us to enter into it with him and to bear it with each other. Uh, how that all gets worked out, uh, you know, the details of which we don't know. We're given pictures and visions and, and poems and uh, wonderful things. But, but Bonhoeffer identified with this, with, you know, this cruciform kind of uh, reality. That God well, is hidden in this suffering, and we need, we find Him there. I don't. I, again, I don't know a lot about Him. I've certainly, you know, as I said earlier, I think in in, in the interview yesterday before we got cut off, um, <laughs> that you know what I do know of Him. He he seems to be just this kind of walking, to some degree, walking contradiction. He really is a bit of a paradox. Um, mm. You know, he he kind of hates the church and probably loves the church, right? Or maybe he loves the church and probably hates the church. That's a better way to put it, I suppose. (laughs) You know, there's always a tension for him. Yes, that's right. Uh, And he even talks that way at some time. I don't know if he uses the word hate so much, but he he kind of talks about the idea that when something that God has set up, for example, he speaks of the state in this way. He Hmm. says that uh, a state that acts in such a way as as the German state was doing negates itself. Um, 
And so in order to love his state, he has to sort of hate his state. Right. And again, I don't know if he, is, if he uses hate language, but what he would say is, in order to sort of support my state, I have to act against it in a way. But it's because it is negating itself. It's doing something it was never meant to do or be. And uh, so, so he's got that element of, of, yeah, kind of holding those two things together. And, uh, yeah. Do, do, who, who, was, who was disagreeing with him at the time, do you think? Or, with, or were they working so, on such a sort of subversive level with this whole, uh, you know, reaction against Nazism and, and this assassination attempt and so on? Was it, was it really quiet, under the radar, or do you think he was be ch being challenged by friends or family members or other theologians saying, what are you doing, Dietrich? This is, this is wrong. <laughs> well, I, I probably got it in different directions. I mean, the, the interesting thing is his entire family was um, supportive of the resistance movement. Okay. And it was actually his brother-in-law that got him into the Abwehr, the military counterintelligence group, hmm. uh, because he was uh, an executive within that movement. Uh, and uh, one of the leaders there. And so he was drawn into this. And Bonhoeffer at first was actually quite reluctant. Um, you know, if you know anything about German ethics, sort of indebted uh, to Kantian ethics, uh, this sense of doing duty for duty's sake was deeply, deeply ingrained. Hmm. And so the idea that a German person would uh, go against their country is it's, it's deeply counterintuitive. Right. And he was, he was quite nervous about that, actually. He had to sort of work through that. And so when he was first invited by his brother-in-law, he, kind of, he kind of wrestled through that. And if you read through his ethics, his book on ethics, uh, you begin to see all these problems you know, creeping up. He's dealing with what does it mean to tell the truth. You know, I'm going right. to be a conspirator. So right. I'm going to be lying. Of course, yeah. Uh, and he says things like, you know, it's better for um, a truth teller to lie than for a liar to tell the truth. Right. Uh, you know, he'll say things like, you know, being evil is worse than doing evil. Um, so well, and we're, we're, of, yeah, we're kind of back to that lesser of two evils conversation we yeah, had in part yeah. one of our, of, our, of our chat. That's right. So he's, he's kind of drawn into this by others in a way. Yep. Um, uh, his family, you know, lots of people involved. Um, so the, the main resistance came from sort of the Nazi church leaders. Uh, and of course, you know, everything was being screened at the time, and, uh, you know, it got increasingly worse in terms of... Um, yeah, just that that kind of heavy-handedness from the government. And the, so, the, so that makes me think. So, so he was sort of. Um, what did you say? Are you know you used the line about are we a Christianity that refuses to grow up? I mean, it seems to me that the church must have, in the German church anyway, must have been pretty immature then. Hmm. Would would we, I guess well, the question I want to ask is: Do you think the church in certain parts of the world would allow something like this to happen today? So, you know, you've got Rwanda, uh, you know, ninety-three percent Catholic country, and we end up with a genocide in ninety-four. How do, how does that happen? Yeah. You know, how is that yeah. possible when you've got this group of people who supposedly believe in the other, who supposedly believe in loving their neighbor, who supposedly yeah. believe in some sort of redemption, and then they end up killing? Yeah. 800,000. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. it's beyond even making sense, you know? Yeah. So, absolutely. So. And again, in, in these situations, there's just so many factors. There's so many factors. Yeah. And, and each one's unique, right? Yes, I think that's true. Yeah. But in terms of what Bonhoeffer would say to Christians, I think he would say be careful that your Christianity doesn't sort of degenerate into religion in the sense that he's using the term. Right. Again, that's not a sociological descriptor. It's a theological use of the term where he's saying, don't allow your Christianity simply to turn into ideas. Right. 
to simply become about the beyond or the other world. Uh, don't think in terms of two spheres, he says. And this is where we separate reality into sacred and secular. Right, right. Uh, and we, we, we kind of retreat into the private sphere so that Jesus is Lord of our private, personal, virtuous life, but he's got no relevance for social uh, justice and social concern. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we don't have time to go into the whole notion of dualism, but I mean, bon- oh, yeah. Bonhoeffer was an anti-dualist through and through, yeah. was he not? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what his whole language around not thinking in two spheres. Yeah, sure. We carve up reality, and then, you know, as religious people in the modern world, uh, we, in- we increasingly retreat into, you know, personal values in the inner world. So would Bonhoeffer have liked a good joke about sex? <laughs> would he have liked a good joke yeah. about sex? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? There's a fantastic little quote. It's not a joke, but uh, you know the biblical book, The Song of Solomon? Yes, of course. Of, yeah. of course, it's a great uh, lover story. Yes. And there's a lot of sexually provocative imagery, even if we don't find uh, twin gazelles to be provocative today. <laughs> in the ancient world, that was provocative stuff. And there was a tendency in the interpretation of that book in, in history to allegorize it into a relationship between Christ and the Church. Right. C- clean it up a little, if you will. Yeah, yeah. and Bonhoeffer yeah. will have none of this. He right. says, this is about a man and a woman, and he says, that is the best Christological interpretation. Huh. Uh, because it's incarnational. Yeah. It's not carving yeah. up reality yeah. and saying sex is carnal and you know, the mind is eternal or something. It's saying, no, this is, this is about Cr- how we live before God as whole beings. Christians really need to lighten up about sex. <laughs> they really do. They just, they, I mean, you know, I love, I love that line by, by W.C. Fields, and besides, the positions are ridiculous, you know? <laughs> like, we got to laugh about it a little bit, you know? You yeah. got to just, yeah. you know, have some fun with it, you know, yeah, smile. Yeah. And, um, and not spiritualize everything. Yeah. There's another little place, I think, in the prison letters where Bonhoeffer says, you know, you sometimes get these pious ideas out there in some of the Christian literature on sex where you're supposed to sort of pray before sex or something. Right. And, and, I mean, not that you can't do that. I mean, go ahead, think about <laughs> stuff. But, That's right. But he says, you know, if you're, he says, it's just kind of bad taste. <laughs> it's bad taste. <laughs> you know, like, like, God gave you these bodies. Oh. Enjoy this that he's given you. And, That's... of course, there are, there are proper places for things. Yeah. And, you know, sexual disease, all, things we need to be careful of, right? But I think I would have liked this guy, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Say, hey, listen, we gotta we gotta wrap up shortly. But can you can we talk a little bit about his impact today? Do you think you know? So, are there any other? Um, I mean, obviously, academically, lots of people thinking about him. You know, you've got uh, church leaders probably speaking about him and writing about him and so on. But where might he have made contact with reality or uh, with respect to say? Uh, I don't know, the fair trade movement or um, civil rights organizations. I mean, has, do you think his thinking has had an impact on, on that level of society? Yeah, well, that's, that's a very good question um, and, and hard to a- answer without yeah. being historically sort of anachronistic because a lot of the, the human rights language gets um, developed post-Second World War. Um, but there is a, there's a deep tradition behind the Second World War, going all the way back to early Judeo-Christian roots mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. sacredness of human life, uh, and the idea that life is sacred not because human persons have uh, sort of social utility. Right. Yep. Uh, we, we often think of that today. P- yep. You know, people that have money and contribute something. To Sounds society like capitalism are, to me. Yeah, kind of worthy social Darwinism kind of. Yeah, sure. They're worth preserving, but but those that don't quote unquote contribute aren't. Uh, well, Bonhoeffer is part of this, this long-standing Judeo-Christian tradition, not to say it's not in other traditions, but he's standing in this one, 
uh, in which the human person is sacred simply because God says so. Right. Yeah, it's good. And it just stops there. There's no kind of going beyond that. That's a basic value uh, made in God's image, and and so we are all valuable. Even the person that I uh, hate, (laughs) or the one that hates me, right, Right. quote, unquote, uh, that person's valuable. Um, And so I, I think Bonhoeffer would certainly applaud human rights. I think it's beyond what he foresaw in terms Mm. of the legal development of Mm. it, but... Mm. uh, Well, I think what made me think to ask that question was your comment about how he came over here and he was kind of fascinated by by the black church, what was going on in it culturally and so on. And and you got to think, this is an awfully bright guy here we're talking about. He's he's, he's thinking about other implications. Oh yeah, it it, it horrified him and he brought back uh, recordings of black spirituals to play to his German students back in Germany. Cool. Profoundly impacted by it. Well, it makes me wonder who he had an impact on as well. You know, like the 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 Rosa Parks of the world, the Martha Luther Kings of the world. You know, did he did he play a role in their lives? Absolutely, and and there have been other theologians. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann, you right. may have heard of, uh, was deeply impacted by Bonhoeffer, and Jürgen Moltmann goes on to um, impact liberation theology which is all about the theology of the, the undersided people, right? The poor, the, the masses, um, sort of climbing up again and claiming uh, liberation from oppression, uh, South America or other parts of the world. And so, yeah, he does inspire a lot of people, sometimes through others like Moltmann, uh, but there's a chain of, of, of kind of people that he impacts for sure. I, uh, you know, I, I saw a film about his life a few years, quite a few years ago, and I, I remember thinking, my brother was quite fascinated by Bonhoeffer at one point in his life, and I, I seem to remember him bringing the book Cost of Discipleship into the house and talking a great deal about him and so on. And, and I've thought for years that we're still waiting to see that screenplay that, that, that some great independent filmmaker is going to make about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and mm. it's going to be Oscar nominated and it's going to win awards and so on because it's just this guy's life. There's just so much to unpack, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, and I just love that paradox and that contradiction. Um, or at least the seeming apparent par- paradox and contradiction. I mean, maybe he didn't struggle with it as much, but it sure seems like it was there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and actually, you know what? The more you get into Bonhoeffer's actual writings, and uh, you see it very much in the prison letters, uh, you do see a truly human guy. Hmm. Uh, he is he is conflicted. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of his poem, Who Am I? I have not, no. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Hmm. Uh, maybe it's something we can almost, you know, sort of in the last few minutes close with, but oh, okay. uh, if I read it out to you... Yeah, I was just going to say, let me see if I can search it, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so here's Bonhoeffer. He writes this from his Tegel prison cell. He says, who am I? They often tell me. I step from my cell's confinement, calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune, equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then... Really that which other men tell myself of? Or am I what I know myself to be, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. 
Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and another tomorrow? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptible, woe-be-gone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. And I think that captures a lot about him. Wow, I, I would say so too. When would he have written that? That was in, I want to say 1943, 44. Oh. He's in prison at this point. Right, right. I'd have to look up the exact Yeah, date. well, I just, you know, I think of the, uh, the, time, the amount of time that he would have had to reflect and think through some of this stuff and work on those phrases and, and, just, str- and just struggling with the questions themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, what, a, what an interesting... Um, fascinating guy who died two weeks before the uh, before D-Day, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or is very very soon before then, and before the liberation. Before yeah. the liberation, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and executed yeah. by the Nazis. That's right. Yeah, tragic, tra- tragic end. Yeah, and that quite the life. Well, listen, Patrick, thank you so much oh. for um, spending the time uh, with me on on Bonhoeffer. Maybe we can do a part two. Uh, continue to be blown away by the people that I interview and, and what's going on in their lives. And just, again, proof that there's so much going on below below the surface. Um, well, thanks very much, David. I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, you're welcome.